But it's a reminder, that song is a great reminder of uh, what we're going to be celebrating later. Communion, just that very act that unites us as believers, that we know there's one sacrifice and in, in one resurrection that unites us all as believers in Christ. And that's what we're going to be coming back to today, one of the most basic topics of Christianity in the series we've been in. And if you're new with us here today, uh, we've been in this series since the beginning of the year, the back to the basics, and reminding ourselves of the, the very fundamentals we have as Christians, because we often get swept up into the details and the things that don't matter and distract us. And throughout this series, we've been coming back to the same concept over and over again as we talk about a church that strives for connectedness. And this will be our sixth week in a row talking about this. So I'm going to quiz you before we see this slide that if we are a church, Maple Plain Community Church is a place to be connected. That means we, one, connect with God, two, and three, I say we're about 100% there. We're getting it here. They're a place to connect with God, to connect with others, and connect others with God. And this is such a simple way to really explain our whole mission, our vision, our values as a community as we are and create disciples, that we connect with God and each other and others to God. And today, as I said, our, our topic is one of the most important. It's a crucial uh, part of Christianity, that there's a unity of believers. And in today's text, we'll be in uh, the book of Ephesians, if you want to start turning there, in Ephesians chapter 4. But the unity of believers is something that we come to day after day. There's so many things in this world that can divide us, and especially after this last year we've been in, we know there's many things that can divide us in, in different ways. But it's not just something that's pertinent to, pertinent to us now, it's common back in the New Testament times as well. And it was this common theme over and over again, especially in Paul's epistles, that we are to be united as Christians, to live with peace with one another. And in this church, there was many different things and cultures and, and religions that people were coming from and into this Christian walk that they continuously found these grounds for division. There's many examples of those divisions in the scripture, but many more uh, calls towards unity and, and warnings against that divisiveness that can tear us apart. But you know, there's so many things these days that we come to, and, and we find out sometimes there's really hard things to work through as communities. Sometimes there's really silly things that cause division in churches. And this man, uh, Tom uh, Rayner, I've read a lot of his books and appreciate his perspective on things, especially because now he's the CEO of LifeWay uh, Publications. But before that, he was a church consultant for decades in the church. And he's often brought into really hairy situations to help these congregations sort through things. So he's seen his fair share of things. And as a couple of years ago, he put out just kind of an informal survey with people across the country, church leaders, Christians, and, and tried to identify what are the most common areas of division in the church. But he found just a string of somewhat humorous stories. Uh, like one church who had an argument. It was over an hour of discussion at a church meeting of whether they should or should not have a clock in the sanctuary. I guess you could say it was a very timely discussion. There's another one where they were fighting over which picture of Jesus to hang in the foyer. And that went on for months and months. And, you know, Jesus should be the thing that unites us. But what picture of Jesus? And my question is, who, who took the pictures that is that important? 
And another one that nearly ended in a church split, the, the thing we're celebrating today, communion, they were arguing for months about whether they should or should not serve gluten-free bread for communion. And I always thought that gluttony was a sin. You had to let that one sink in for a bit. But, you know, story after story was pretty humorous, but then after a while, there was enough of them strung along that it transitioned from being funny to being really sad. It's really sad when we let stuff like this divide us as believers because we take our hearts and our minds and our focus off of what really matters, the basics of why we exist as Christians. And that brings us to the text we're going to read today. Some would argue that this is the most important text, Ephesians 4, especially the first 16 verses. It's the most important text in all of the scriptures as we consider what it means to be a church community, a healthy church body, especially these first six verses. We know that many congregations throughout the ages and even in this time were in these volatile environments where there's many things that from an earthly or fleshly level that want to pull people apart. But it's only unity that helps the church persevere. Unity is the most crucial aspect as believers. It's the difference between success and failure as a church. And so as we read these first six verses of Ephesians 4, let's pray that God would speak to us now on this topic, this crucial and this important topic in our lives as we consider what it means to be united as believers. Pray with me now before we read. So Lord, we do, I just ask you to speak into each one of us, God, that you would restore to us any sense of unity that may have been lost by our own uh, divisions and arguments. Uh, God, that you would help us to understand the great opportunity we have to be united as believers in you. God, help us to know personally where we've fallen short where we can seek restoration, but God, ultimately that we do this for you, for the advancement of your kingdom, and for your glory. So God, speak to us now in this time, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's read together, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is one of my favorite texts in all of the scripture because it helps, us, it helps to remind us of what's crucially important, what brings us together. And you read so many ones that we'll get back to later in the sermon here, but there's so much that unites us and brings us together. But the first verse is very clear that all of us as Christians, every believer is called to unity. This is not some optional exercise for us. It's not something we can flip on in one moment and then turn off in another when it's inconvenient to us. But unity is the calling that all of us share. 
And when we get to this point, we know that there's a common split in these epistles of Paul that he spends the first half of his letter talking about who God is and what Christ has done and how we should properly believe in him. And then the second part, which is how we should live as Christians. And here we see it again, then or therefore, we should live a life worthy of the calling we've received. And if we believe all of this stuff about Jesus, that we should live like it's true. Basically, what this verse is saying is if you profess to be a Christian, you must also live like one. And this is not just your individual pursuits as we see in the verses that follow. This is talking about how we live with one another as we're called into the body of Christ. And this here is an urge. It's an exhortation. It's Paul pleading with believers to live this life as a Christian, as they profess to be. That we know that if you live a life worthy of the calling you've received, it doesn't mean, we misunderstand the word worthy as though it makes us, uh, that we are owed this, that we've worked towards it. And you think if you're worthy of a promotion at your job, that you've worked for that promotion, but think of it in the opposite. What he's saying is if you're given a promotion, then work like you deserve that promotion. If God has so graciously given you the gifts and all the things that make us a Christian, then we should live worthy of that calling. And the word worthy was used in this time to really explain a scale when there was equal weight on each side, that it was true. And so the way you believe our calling should be equal to our conduct. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And our calling is not just our salvation. It's not that we're living worthy of heaven, but rather that we're living worthy to be called into the body of believers. That we are now a family with one another, and we stick together even when things are difficult. There's relational conduct that's being talked about here. And in the verses that follow, it's extrapolated a bit more clearly and so verse 2, we see that there's these qualities of unified believers. These are the things that we should exemplify in this worthy life that we're living. Everyday qualities. That we're be, to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. When we look at these, there's really four uh, core virtues or qualities that are taken out of this text. There's humility, gentleness, patience, and what we'll say is mutual forbearance. These are really the keys to living a unified life with one another. And it should be of no surprise that the first quality of them all is humility. Because humility truly is the beginning of the Christian life. No one becomes a believer in Christ without first humbling their heart. And humility and pride are often at odds with one another in this life. We're not taught humility in our culture, but rather pride. It's what's enforced in each one of us. It's encouraged that we become prideful people, that we believe in ourselves above all else, and that we let ourselves be the rulers of our lives. But it wasn't any different in the Greek culture. Humility for them was not seen as a virtue, but a vice. And to be humble is actually a derogatory term that they would use for slaves and, and lowly, the poor people 
of society. Their teaching was that in the fullness of life, there is no room for humility. Humility has never been enforced in a cultural sense, but we're told that humility is the first step to being united as a body of Christ. So we often misunderstand humility because it's also translated as lowliness, to be lowly of heart. And we might think that means if you're humble, it means that you're just some worthless lowlife, that you think of yourself so poorly that you lose respect for yourself. But rather, humility means that you have proper perspective of who you are. And this is where we begin to understand the difference between being worthless and unworthy. And they're two entirely different concepts. Worthless makes you think you have no worth. Unworthy understands you don't deserve what you have. And so when you live in proper perspective as a humble person, you begin to see the immense value that you have. As we'll celebrate later, that Jesus came to this earth to die for you, to raise from the dead for you, that he loves you so much and values you so much you would do that. But living in proper perspective helps you to understand that you're no more deserving of that than anyone else. Humility unites us because we understand that no one is more deserving than other as we see ourselves as God sees us. That's truly the way of Christ was to be humble, to come to this earth, to do what he did with no thought of repayment. And so we follow in the footsteps of Christ, we adopt into ourselves that same attitude of humility. So humility then flows out into gentleness. Another word that's tricky to understand, we think of gentleness as being timid or weak, but as we've said many times, gentleness is to have power under control. It means you know what you're capable of, but you would restrain just like a domesticated farm animal, like the, my friends, the oxen I showed last week. All of them are stronger, maybe not smarter, but they, they could overpower anyone, but yet they use their power towards a common good. When we operate with gentleness, we understand that all of our power, and in this case it's speaking more specifically of our emotional power, we use it for the good of others. It suggests one who has their emotions under control. And so we see it's the opposite of things like rudeness and bitterness and harshness. We learn early on in this life, even before we can talk, even before we can walk, that we can use our emotions to our own advantage. That we can coerce other people, we can manipulate with them with our emotions to get what we want. And even now, when you have a young kid come up to you, maybe your, your, your child who says, Mom or Dad, I just love you so much. First thing you would say is, what do you want, kid? <laughs> right? We manipulate other people with our emotions, and emotions are very powerful to get what you want out of other people. But one who is gentle knows that even in the midst of hurts and slights and insults, we don't use our emotional power for revenge or retaliation, but rather in a constructive way towards restoration and reconciliation. One must have their emotional power under control, and that starts with the heart of humility. That's what happens in inside, your inside. And then a spirit or a conduct of gentleness. 
We see the same pairing here coming up in patience and mutual fair, uh, forbearance. So patience is that idea. It's also translated as long-suffering. Be able to make it through those things that hurt and are difficult. And this is especially difficult, again, in our country, our culture, where things come instantaneously without any work. But patience really is described in believing that God's timetable is good, no matter what that may be. It's, it's this characteristic of a mature believer. It's this attitude of resolve that never gives up, is never disappointed, but endures to the end, especially in those times of adversity. When we look at patience, it's not a matter of just getting patience that makes us patient, but rather adopting and managing proper expectations of the world, of the people around you. Because when you live long enough, you understand that things never work the first attempt the way you would like it to in the timetable that you've set for it. But patience is waiting for God to work when and where and how God determines it is best. And we see this all throughout the scriptures, all the way back into Noah. If you read through the Bible plan, you would read in Genesis the account of Noah. And what's kind of hidden in there, which we don't understand, is how long Noah was building his ark. Okay, so just consider the fact of where he is. God told him to build this giant ship away from any body of water, which seems odd by itself. But the way you read the text, it could be over 100 years he was building this ark. Maybe at the minimum, 30 or 40 years. Either way, it's remarkable. The fact that he was patient enough to believe in God, to be mocked continuously by people, to stick with what he knew was right and good and honoring to God. Patience is waiting for God to work when and where and how he chooses to. And now we look at that relationally, that means that we understand we're patient with one another. We're all on the same journey. We're all going to the same end. We're all going to be perfected in heaven one day, but we're at different spots of it. Trust that God is doing his good work and those around you as well. And if they're a spot that they shouldn't be, trust that he'll get them in the spot that they need to be. Be patient with them. And that leads us to the idea of this forbearance or bearing with one another. And quite literally, this means get along. Get along with one another. Despite the faults and the failures and the differences you may have, there's this idea of this mutual forbearance is that I show grace with you, you'll show grace with me. And we bear with each other's weaknesses and deficiencies and faults. Now, these are the four qualities that lead to unity in believers, but there's one word at the end of that verse that's very important, that we do this in love. And the way the Greek is written here, it's not that just we forbear or that we bear with one another in love, but that we do all of this. All of these qualities are rooted and established and covered in love. And love means that we seek the highest good for one another. Love naturally leads us to these qualities, and these qualities become uh, important and impactful because of love. And love is such an important part of unity because it starts with love and it ends with love. It starts with God's work in us, and it's God's loving commitment to us that brings us to a common end.
It's all covered in love. That helps us understand the next verse, the source of unity. That we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. When we consider that it's all covered in love, God's love, it helps us understand this verse. And one of them is is, uh, that we're to make every effort. Unity doesn't come to us naturally. It's not a natural condition of the heart to seek unity, but rather in our fallen state, in the fallen world, we see those things that divide us, that distinguish us from one another. And and we, we put ourselves into these these camps or these tribes. Tribalism is very real in the world. And when tribalism makes its way into the church where we start dividing ourselves by focusing on what makes us different, it becomes very damaging. Unity doesn't come to us naturally, and so we are to make every effort. But we also understand that we don't create unity. We preserve the unity given to us by God. We don't create unity in the Spirit. We keep unity of the Spirit. And this word keep is really important. important. It's the same way that we'd say that, would, that milk would keep in the fridge. Okay, you didn't create that milk, but you can do your part to preserve that milk, or you could do your part to spoil that milk. And the same is true in unity in the church, that it comes through the Spirit, through the bond of peace that Jesus came to usher. And earlier in this letter, this book, of, uh, uh, book to the uh, Ephesian church, Paul wrote that Jesus is our peace, that Jesus came to bring peace, that he made these two groups, speaking about the Jews and the Gentiles, he made them one, and he destroyed the barriers, the dividing walls of hostility. We don't create this peace, we guard it. We preserve it. And this word, keep, means that we guard it like a precious treasure, like a family heirloom. And isn't it amazing to think of unity that way, that as we're a family, our most precious commodity is our unity. And so we work together to guard that, to protect it. Because the truth is that Satan loves to divide believers. It's one of his core missions. He doesn't care how he divides us. He doesn't care what divides us. It's totally irrelevant to him. His mission is to divide us. We kind of create for ourselves the things that become divisive. And when we try to create unity, we often just create division. There's so many man-made attempts at unity in this world, and one of them is like what uh, Steph said earlier, organizational affiliation. If we can just be on the same team, so to speak, that will be okay. And so we think that if we just put people in the same building or in the same denomination, that all of a sudden they're going to be united, but they fight about clocks and pictures and communion. Right? And I don't use the word flabbergasted a lot, but I think it's the most apt description of how I felt over this last year that was incredibly, explosively divisive. I am flabbergasted at the way many Christians and Christian leaders decided to try to unite the church. And they tried to make things a church or a a Christian identity like politics. That if we could just bring politics in the church that are bring unity. And it became the driving force for many people that they thought if you can just all vote for the same team, we'll be united in something. 
But we know that things are so divisive in that realm that it only leads towards more destruction in the church. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged in things like that. We shouldn't be informed, but I'm saying we can't be obsessed and engrossed in those things where it becomes the identity of believers. That's a man-made attempt at unity, and they did it back in the time of Jesus. They'd often ask him in trapping questions, trying to reveal his personal politics on very divisive issues. You know what Jesus did? He deflected the question. He refused to answer, and he tried to bring this, this plane of thought to a higher level and say, you know what, my kingdom's not of this world and of borders and countries and rulers. It's a spiritual kingdom that's written, and it works through people's hearts. And I think that's what we have to do as Christians, is we can't let things like this divide us. We can't try to create our own unity through man-made things, but remember what unites us. Remember the source of our unity. It's not uniformity. And that's different. That's our attempt to destroy our diversity. But rather embrace diversity of thought. So the things that are not a salvation issue, but rather be united despite our differences. And that's where we come to really the meat of the sermon today of this text is the foundation of unity. We're going to see a lot of ones here, seven ones to be exact. But these are the things, this is the heart of unity given to us, the heart of the unity that we keep and protect and preserve. It's first that there's one body and one spirit, just we're called the one hope when we are called. One body, one spirit, one hope. Now when we consider ourselves one body, we know that means that our church isn't the body. Churches in this country are not the body, but every believer around the world, when you believe in Christ, you're given the Holy Spirit and you become part of the universal, capital C, church. That it goes beyond any language or culture. It goes beyond any group of people or social status. The barriers we place up are taken down when we enter into the one body. And God sees the church around the world as one church, one body, one family, despite how many times we try to destroy that. I have a friend who right now works at a, a suburban church, multi-staff, hundreds of people, and he felt the call and the burden to apply to a church in northern Minnesota in a small town of about 40 people. He feels called to the solo pastorate, and he's on his way, I think, to going there. But he did a little reconnaissance of this town of just a few hundred people in this small town. There's nine churches. Nine churches. Four of them are Lutheran churches. Three of them are Baptist churches. Some of them are across the street from each other. When we're one body, we don't create divisions like that. And as you get into those small towns, you understand it's because six decades ago, one family sold a pig to another family and it was 10 pounds lighter than they paid for. Now they've created different churches, they don't mix, and we get into those situations all the time, but we understand the foundation of unity is we are one body. Any division or any wall we create should be torn down by Jesus. When we're one spirit, we understand that there's one Holy Spirit that indwells in all of us as the church. That's what makes the church the church, is the Holy Spirit dwelling in the hearts and the lives of believers. It's the Spirit that speaks the same truth to 
to all of us. It's the spirit that convicts us all of our sin, that ushers us into new life and does the same work. We're all given the same fruit of the spirit, and though our giftings may be different, we're all in the same process of sanctification to meet the same end. There's one spirit in the work of all of those in the church, which gives us one hope, one hope of heaven, one hope. Only Jesus can save us. There's one future for all of us. That's what we understand. If we can't get along here, how do you expect to get along in heaven? We have to stay united here. And the church, when it's operating at its best, unified, is a foretaste of heaven. There's one hope that we all share. In verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There's one Lord. This is very obviously Jesus. And when we become a Christian, we become, we become common citizens of his kingdom. See, only Jesus died and rose again. There's no one else. There's no other person. There's no other organization that deserves our allegiance except the one who died and rose again. There's one Lord. And he alone has the right to the church's sole allegiance. That's what unites us, is that we're all working towards a common goal. We're all working under a common Lord. There's one faith. There's one faith that saves us. It's not in anything we create or we determine valuable, but Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that saves us, the crucified and the resurrected Lord. Faith brings us together, and it keeps us together as we confess the same faith and the same Lord and point each other to him as we trust and obey him. And then baptism. There's one baptism. And this describes that it's an outward expression of the faith we have in the one Lord. Now, sure enough, baptism is one of those things that divide us because we are focused on the mode of baptism. And I remember hearing one church said they'll reject anyone's baptism if even there's a full immersion baptism, they say. So even if their pinky toe is above the water, it doesn't count. They've got to get rebaptized again. And sometimes they just hold them under for 10 seconds just to make sure they're completely under. But we get these things where people are like, your baptism isn't real, my baptism isn't real. We forget what it represents. That as believers, it's an outward expression of our faith that we say we have been died. We, we, we have been crucified with Christ and we join him in his resurrection. We died to ourselves and we live in a new life together. It's a beautiful moment. It's one of the ordinances of Christ for the church is to be baptized. We see lastly in verse 6 that we are under one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one Father. And when we become a believer, we become one family. We all have the same spiritual father together, which makes us spiritual brothers and sisters, that's the ultimate unity we have as living under the same divine Father who is overall in his sovereignty. And we all agree that everything that happens is allowed or ordained by God. That he's through all. That he operates. That all good comes from God. As he works his purposes in the world, as works his purposes through us. It's not you, it's not me. It's God, the Father. And he's in all which means that God indwells in all of us, that he manifests himself in us, that as we become his church, it means that we are the face of God and Christ. We become his representatives 
in this world. See, Christians believe this. They believe that we live in a a God-created, God-controlled, God-sustained, and God-filled world. And it brings us together. That's the kind of conviction that binds people more closely than any human tie. It's the foundations of unity. We're going to transition to that in a moment, a time for us to express that unity with one another through communion. But before we do that, I just want to talk about some of these key takeaways of unity. We've been doing that throughout the series as we think about the basics. If there's anything you want to take away, it's these things. And first is that unity, the unity of believers, is absolutely crucial for the church to be effective. You don't want to waste your time as believers. Don't be arguing over unimportant divisive things. But stay united in the basic truths of God. That's how we live our lives as worthy Christians, worthy to our calling, is that we live up to the unity and the relational community he calls us to. We also understand we cannot create this unity. Any attempt we have at creating or fabricating unity as people will fail. It will only lead to divisiveness in the end. But rather, we work to preserve this unity, the one that's given to us as a gift. It's all found in who God is, the triune God. And it's only God that can call us into this unmatched and eternal unity. This unity we experience for a moment now, but we experience it in its perfection in heaven forever. It's beautiful. If you want heaven on earth, be united with one another before we experience the complete picture in eternity. It's all a gift of God.